You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, friends, uh, very thankful that I can be here together with you. My wife, Janie, and I are really glad that we can uh, be with people that, though we may at face value be strangers uh, because of our faith in Christ, I'm glad to know that I'm with, uh, with family, with brothers and sisters. And uh, we do have some, some connections, I guess, you and I. Uh, Brett Patterson, one of your your pastor is here. He and I have served for many years in the past in youth ministry together. I'm really grateful for my long friendship and ministry relationship with him. And uh, Paul Whittingstall, who I know has been a, uh, a good source of blessing and encouragement to you, has also been so for our church at Hope Markham as well. So greetings from Hope Markham. Really glad we can be here with you. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, whether you're at home whether you're here in person, uh, get a copy of the scriptures out, and we're going to go through Matthew 1, verse 1 to verse 17 together. I don't really watch a lot of live TV, except for maybe football on Sundays or Mondays, but uh, when I do, you can kind of predict around this time of year what type of commercials you're going to see on TV. There's a couple just reoccurring ones around the Christmas season. One that I saw this year, then I saw it, and I was like, yep, seen that before. A new Christmas Coca-Cola commercial, you know, with the very classic Santa Claus, big red beard, and just very classic looking. And lo and behold, another Coke commercial. Chocolate commercials. Ferrara Rocher. One of my favorites. Wish they had them all year round. Toblerone, another good one if you want to know what to get me for Christmas. When we were in high school, my brother asked for one thing for Christmas. It was only available in Australia, apparently. And he got it. A 10-kilogram Toblerone bar. One triangle. It was like a two-hand grip. And that chocolate went a lot faster than you would have thought with the households and high school boys. One commercial that I've seen pretty recently around Christmas time, it seems like this is the time of the year that they try and get you to buy into it, Ancestry.ca. And you guys got that before if you're a family, Ancestry.ca, 23andMe. These kind of companies that say, yeah, pay your subscription, put in your name, or even do like a DNA test, send us your blood in the mail, that's not too weird, uh, but, and then you get to find out a little bit more about who you are, and the pitch with these ancestry uh, type things is that the more you know where you come from, the more you'll really know who you are. Today, we're going to look into the ancestry of Jesus in what we call the genealogy from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. When some people think about their last name, their family history, some of us get a sense of pride. Maybe you've got a a ministry family background. Maybe you've got a military family background. And when you think about who has come behind you that carried your family name, that heritage gives you a sense of pride. Others of us, though, um, we we really don't want to go online. We really don't want to search out what might be in our history because we know a little bit what it's our history and we'd really prefer that just stayed in a box somewhere to the side. 
Both of those things are in Jesus' history. Names of honor and renown, but then stories of shame that you might want to sweep under the rug. Today, we're going to consider, as we consider the wonder of Christmas season, we want to look into the who Christmas is all about. And we're going to get to the bottom of the who by getting to the bottom of this ancestry of Jesus from Matthew 1, verse 1 to 17. And when we get to the bottom, what we'll find is that the unique ancestry of Jesus proves that he is the Savior we need. So I'm going to read this entire genealogy now. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. At home or here in person, let's follow along. This is God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, everyone's still with me. Easy to skip through this. Lots to learn. And what Matthew is trying to demonstrate is that the unique ancestry of Jesus proves that he is the Savior we need. We're going to ask and answer three questions in our time today. First, how does he prove that Jesus is the Savior we need? Second, why does a genealogy matter to prove this? And third, what does it all mean for us? So let's look at the first one. How does he prove it with this genealogy? And when I say how does he prove it, I'm not so much looking into the meaning yet. It's like I'm not so much looking at the the meal that's on my plate, but I'm looking at the table, the setting that's on the table. 
there is this design that Matthew incorporates into his genealogy that's kind of hard to miss with our 21st century Western eyes that would have been unmistakable to first century Jewish eyes. He proves it with artistic thoughtfulness. There is design in here that's important for us to recognize. The point of artistic design isn't really to convince you of the truth. The point of artistic design is more to develop a deeper appreciation for the truth. You get this if you're into art, and even if you're not into art and you're more like a sports guy, you get this too and you may not even know it. Okay, so like in 2016, the Leafs abandoned the logo that I grew up with that Wendell Clark had and that Matt Sundin wore and Dougie Gilmore, and they got a new logo, a new leaf and a new font for the name, but they incorporated some unique artistic designs that if you knew them, could develop a deeper appreciation for the heritage of the franchise of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So, in this new design, they intentionally put 31 points on the leaf. The purposes of that is to correspond to the year that the Maple Leaf Gardens opened in 1931. Also, like the amount of the veins on the leaf and the points on the veins on the leaf correspond to other things like the, the first year of the franchise and to the amount of Stanley Cups that the Leafs won, none of which were in my lifetime and I don't anticipate will be in my lifetime. You can laugh there or not. It's fine. I watch football anyways, not hockey. But the point, though, he, is that kind of design is here in this text. There's things that first glance might miss, but to a Jewish audience, they saw and it developed a deeper appreciation for the truth that he was trying to convince them of. Jesus is the Savior we need. Okay, so there's two artistic, thoughtful designs in this genealogy here. The first one's a little more obvious. It's this repetition of 14 three times over. Do you see that in verse 17? Look down at the text with me, verse 17. The generations from Abraham to David, 14. David to deportation, 14. Deportation to Babylon, 14. So apparently this really matters to Matthew, this repetition of 14 three times. And I'll be honest, I did some study in this passage, and the real meaning of what 14 corresponds to is kind of a mystery to us nowadays, but... There were a couple things that could have meant, but what, what we do know is that it really mattered to Matthew, and it would have been really clear to the first readers. And the point of this repetition, whatever its meaning is, is really just to grab your attention here. This unique symbolic number that was meaningful to the Jews, that might escape us a little bit today, would have really grabbed them by the collar and be like, listen, this isn't an ordinary ancestry. There is something extraordinary going on here. There's something extraordinary about the birth of this man. That's the first thing that's good for us to pay attention to. The second thing is a little foggy for us to read at first, but track with me here, all right? It's in the first few words of verse 1. Look at that with me. What do those first five words say? The book of the... Genealogy seems kind of benign, but to a Jew reading this, it would have immediately clicked that Matthew is borrowing a term from the book of Genesis, 
a term that Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, used nine times, kind of as nine chapter markers in the book of Genesis. In, in Hebrew, the word it translated to, these are the generations of, in Genesis. But when Matthew borrowed that and translated it into Greek, we have this term, different in English, same in his language, the book of the genealogy. This term showed up in Genesis nine times, Genesis 2-4, Genesis 5-1, Genesis 6-9. They're chapter markers. So when Jews saw same term in Genesis being used here in Matthew, something clicks and they're like, oh, in Genesis when we read that, a, a new chapter was starting in the story. There was a shift, there was a progression, there was a change, something new. And now they read this same term in Matthew and the Jewish mind clicks and says, ah, Something's happening here. There's a shift. There's a progression. There's a change. Something's new. Not only do they learn from this design that something extraordinary is coming, but they learn with this shift, this progression, this change from this term that potentially something revolutionary is coming. With artistic thoughtfulness, Matthew's trying to grip their attention and say, the unique ancestry of Jesus proves that he is the extraordinary, revolutionary Savior we need, that you need. That's what he is trying or how he tries to prove it. Let's get to the second question now. Why does this matter? Why even have 16 verses outlining three sets of 14 generations? Why not just have chapter, verse 1, and then skip down to verse 18 and get to the Mary story, right? Why even have this? Well, the Jews really cared about a written record, but also, you know that when the scriptures, the gospels were first written, they weren't first written with believers in mind. They were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as evangelistic tools with non-believers in mind. Most people today who are picking up the Bible are picking up the Bible, believing what the Bible says about the Bible. But when the Gospels were originally written, they were originally written to be passed out and read to people who weren't necessarily trusting what it was saying. Matthew is an unbelieving audience with a Jewish background in mind here. And there are some unique people and circumstances included in this genealogy which would have uniquely spoken to a few type of unbelievers who would have been reading the Gospel of Matthew. And maybe this is one of you. Some of the characters here in this ancestry would have um, resonated with people who were skeptical about Christianity, with people who felt marginalized and kind of put to the sides and disregarded by others. And it would have resonated with people who are suffering and going through really hard times in life. And by including these people in the genealogy, it matters because it demonstrates that God cares for these types of people. God cares for us in our unique situations like us who maybe are skeptical to the faith. If you are, that's you here or you watching online. God can give reason to those who are skeptical about the Christian faith. 
Maybe you just clicked on to watch today, or maybe you got dragged here by someone else, and you've been rehashing these questions that you heard from someone else saying that you think is the silver bullet to take Christianity down, or you're just really wondering what's this all about. God's not intimidated by our skeptical questions about the faith. He's willing to address them head on. And some of the Jews reading this genealogy and wondering about Jesus probably were really skeptical about the perceived scandal of the claim that Jesus was born of a virgin birth. And they would have seen that and was like, ah, is that really true? This seems a little... Mm. But the Jews who were skeptical about the claim of virgin birth and this perceived scandal would have read in this genealogy that Jesus was born from Judah and Tamar. And I don't know how much you know your Bible, but that's like some R-rated stuff going on in that relationship. Like, not primetime television type stuff. That was a real scandal, what Judah did to this woman, Tamar. But still, even in that scandal, God promised that the eventual king of Israel would come from the line of Judah. So people may be skeptical about Mary, but then they remembered that God was at work in Judah and Tamar. Maybe God is at work here as well, too. God's not intimidated by our skeptical questions. He gives reason and faces head-on our skeptical questions. God gives reason to the skeptics, and he cares for them. There are some unique names also in here who would have been uniquely marginalized people in their culture. And by including them in this genealogy, it shows that God gives mercy to the marginalized. See, people who are on the outside would have resonated with some of the women who are named here, who actually didn't need to be named at all. Because if you look at all of these 14 times 3 names, the significant majority of them are men. The genealogies were really father to son and father to son. The women didn't be need to be named, but they were given special mention, even though there were those names in the genealogy that you might want to sweep under the rug. Names like, uh, like uh, Ruth. Ruth was a, a widow and a refugee. Names like Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. People like... Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba was taken advantage of and abused by a man with a position of power. And their circumstances would made them in their culture marginalized people who could have been swept under the rug and disregarded and shamed. And they didn't need to be included in the genealogy at all to have the written record. But they're given specific mention because those who our culture might shame are those whom God may honor and love. And you may feel in your circumstances that you've been marginalized, that things have been done to you, or even things that you have done. People look down their, their noses at you. That's not what the Lord does. God shows mercy to the marginalized, gives reason to the skeptic, and he gives hope to those who are suffering. And certainly 2020, and sometimes in church life, and a lot of family life, and in our society has been marked by a lot of suffering. And these 14 times 3 generations really comprise the history of Israel. Highs and lows, wandering in the desert, enslaved to foreign powers, prosperous and thriving, 
taken away as prisoners of war. Highs and lows, but the generational history of Israel as a nation was really personalized by the Jews. And when they remembered what God did to Israel as a nation in the highs and the lows, they remembered that God, as God was with them, the nation, so God was with them individually. And that gave them hope. In the same way that, in that same way, we can know that as God was with the nation, God is with us in our suffering. And whether it's in your own life or in the church, or in our society, God is working all things together for our good. That's why this genealogy matters. That's why these names and its history is important. It demonstrates that God cares for us in our unique situations. All right, so those two questions there, the first ones, are really the appetizer to this sermon. Now is the main course. Jesus is the Savior we need. His unique ancestry proves it. So, what does this unique ancestry mean? What does it mean? What is the meaning of Christ? What does it mean that he's the son of David? What does it mean that he's the son of Abraham? All right, let's dig into this. I bet you're going to learn some things, because I know I did when I was studying this. So, really the outline of the entire passage, verse 1 to verse 17, is kind of comprised in verse 1. Look at it again with me, verse 1. Look in the text. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole genealogy really describes his lineage from Abraham through David to Mary and Joseph. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Right? Christ is a title, you know, like Queen Elizabeth, Prime Minister Trudeau. Christ is a title that means Savior, the Chosen One of God. And so that's Jesus' title. Now, son of Abraham and son of David, these describe the type of Savior Jesus is and the kind of salvation we need. Now, before we understand the depth of what that means, it's important for us to have a moment where it's really good just to be self-aware of the convictions that we have within the culture that we live in. Because any reasonable person would recognize that today, some of the dearest convictions that we have as a church have become rather distasteful to our neighbors who uh, don't attend church. For many, the message of a savior and the need for salvation kind of has a taste of sour milk. One sip, and you're not going back for a second glass. The rest of that glass is going down the drain, and if there's any left in the carpet, uh, in, the, in the carton, it's going with it. And maybe that's the way Christianity is tasted to you here or anyone watching online. You only hear because you're dragged to be here. And you feel like it's just holding you back from the life that you want to live. You're not in the frame of Jesus is the Savior we need. You're really in the frame of mind of do we even really need a Savior at all? Reasonable question. I have an answer for you from a place that you might not expect. From a man named Scott Galloway. Scott Galloway is a best-selling author and a professor at New York University. 
He was recognized in 2012 by the World Economic Forum on a list of 100 people called the Global Leaders of Tomorrow who are recognized for their economic impact on a global scale. Scott Galloway was being interviewed by a person who was asking how we as a society have allowed tech companies, like Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, how we as a society have allowed tech companies like these to have such a dominating influence on some, for some of us the moment-by-moment -moment way that we live. This was Scott Galloway's answer, and it's incredibly insightful from a non-religious person. He said, we decided in a modern economy, as you become more educated and more affluent, your dependence upon a super being and church attendance goes down. But our questions get bigger and bigger. In order to fill that void between a spiritual need and a lack of spiritual figures, we fill it with people. We used to fill it with athletes and officials, government officials. Now we fill it with innovators. And he says that people like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and the like have ascended to this, in his words, Jesus Christ-type characteristics of themselves, which is not surprising because four of the top five richest people in the world are the CEOs of these companies. This is a remarkable insight from a guy who is not a friend of Christianity. See, some people feel like the choice to embrace a secular lifestyle means that they've graduated from the elementary ways of religion into the uh, intellectual ways of the non-religious. But Scott Galloway, no friend of religion or Christianity, understands that these people, even though they feel like they've graduated, recognize that they've missed some crucial classes. And there are questions that gnaw at us at a fundamentally human level that may be gnawing at your soul as well. Questions like, where do I even fit into this world? How can I make my life count? Who will actually take the effort to know me and love me beyond my profile picture? What is truth and how is justice and fairness actually going to prevail in a society that seems so backwards? What questions are gnawing at your soul, keeping you from being able to find the place that you want to feel whole and complete in this life we're supposed to live? Finding these things is really hard. Finding these things feels like looking up through a glass ceiling. And when we think we've found them, we want to hold on to them, but holding on to them is like trying to grasp steam out of a kettle. And the frustration that comes from that begs another question, like, how is anyone going to get through? How can we fix, actually fix any of this? And looking for that answer feels like seeking for buried treasure, where we think we found the X that marched the spot. And we dig and we dig and we dig to only to find no treasure and look up and realize that we've dug ourselves into a pit of despair and we have no idea how to get out. You might not call that need salvation, 
But man, you feel like you need to be rescued out of that spot. And generation after generation, to people in that place, the message of Christmas still rings true. Jesus is the Savior we need. He is satisf- his message has satisfied the most intellectual minds, the deepest longing of our hearts and he, in history past, and he can for you today. Jesus is the Savior we need. Now, to understand the type of Savior is and the kind of salvation we need, it's helpful to get a little bit deeper into recognizing what it means that he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. So buckle up. Press in. You're going to learn some Bible history now if this is not familiar to you already. And if it is, I hope it's refreshing and reviving so that your faith can be renewed again today. So what does it mean that Jesus is the son of Abraham? We feel a lot this year how broken our world is. And as the son of Abraham, Jesus is the chosen savior who came to bless a broken world. A lot of people have this very skewed perspective of what they think God is like. A lot of people think, and I found this especially with like teenagers from my time in youth ministry, that God is like this angry, grumpy cop who hasn't finished his uh, coffee yet, who's just tailgating you all the way down the street, waiting for you to get through a yellow so he can slap you with a ticket. Maybe that's what you feel God is like. But read the first book of Genesis, and you'll see that God has a very different type of disposition towards humanity. Even starting right from the beginning, God's first posture towards his people was to bless them. And even when we messed it up, God still promised that he would bless again. God is for your good. We get glimpses of the good in this life, but most of the time we just feel the rending of the brokenness of this world. We we feel like we've whatever blessing there could have had, we've we've missed it. Tim Keller has this really unique, uh, appropriate definition of sin that changes our mind to see it's not the grumpy cop give you a ticket type thing. Tim Keller says sin is not simply doing bad things. It's putting good things in the place of God. The brokenness that we feel in this world is because we have exchanged what God offered. Rather than finding our wholeness in God himself, in the creator, we have looked to find our sense of wholeness and completeness in the created thing, in the world itself. And in exchanging the creator for the created thing, we have exchanged a blessing for a curse. We've exchanged a blessing for brokenness. But even though we mess things up, God is still for the good of his name and the good of our soul. God promised that the blessing would be restored and he promised that it would come through the line of Abraham, through a son of Abraham. Genesis 12, verse two to three, God told Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is the Savior we need. He is the son of Abraham who came to restore us to relationship with our creator, to reorder the desire of our hearts so that we desire him and not merely the things he created. And in him, we are restored to the blessing God wants for the good life that we desire. Galatians 2 verse 3 to 14 explains this. See, how can Christ reverse what we've broken? Christ can give us God's blessing because he willingly suffered your brokenness, your curse at the cross. Galatians 2, 13 to 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the world, as God promised, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. See, faith in Jesus Christ forgives us of our sins and reorders us out of reorders our disordered desires. In being forgiven of our sins, we are reunited back into the presence of God, back into the Holy Spirit, back to our Creator. Being forgiven, we're reunited. And being forgiven, our heart's desires are reordered so that you long after not the thing created, but the one who created you and this world. And in knowing Him, in being reunited to him and walking by faith in Christ who made you whole, that's how we can live the good life and enjoy the fullness of the blessing that God made you to enjoy. Jesus is the Savior we need. But here's a critical question that you need to grapple with if you're going to come away from today with anything. How would your life look different if you actually lived like you needed this type of salvation. How would your life look different? Jesus is the Savior who came to bless a broken world, reunite us to God's presence to enjoy him again. He's not only the son of Abraham, though. He's also the son of David. Let's dig into now into that part. Stay buckled up. As the son of David... Jesus is the chosen king who came to deliver. See, you know David. You know David if you, even if you don't know the Bible that much. Because you know that every time March Madness comes around or the playoffs, they always overuse that David versus Goliath stereotype versus the great team and the bad team and it's used way too often. But there was a real David, a historical David, who fought a real Goliath who was the prototype of the good king that Israel was supposed to have over their nation. As the king, there's really two kind of aspects to his job description that really mattered when it boiled down. Number one, the king was supposed to live a life worth modeling, someone who followed God's law, someone who other people could imitate. He was supposed to live a life worth modeling, and he was supposed to govern with rules worth following. And when a good king 
lived a life worth modeling, and governed with rules worth following, it would enable a just and fair and prosperous society. Problem? Royal family failed big time. Their lives, mm, not most of them, not something you want your kids to follow after. Some of them, not most of them. Most of them, way more corrupt than the nations around them. And it got so bad and so corrupt and so unjust that God was kind of like, I love my children enough that we need to start this new. And he allowed four nations, Babylon and Assyria, wicked rulers to come in and ravage the people who he called his treasured possession and allow his chosen people to be taken away as prisoners of war to a foreign nation. After 70 years, as the prophet Jeremiah predicted, the people of Israel came back to their nation. But not too long after, another nation started oppressing them, the Romans. And throughout all of this time, they knew this is not the way that it was supposed to be. They weren't supposed to be in, under oppression from foreign nations. They were supposed to be a light, an example to all the nations of how great God was and how they could know him. But they were in captivity and longed for that freedom. And they knew that freedom would come when the son of David came. God made that promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what they wanted. The king worth modeling, with rules worth following, who could allow them to live just and prosperous society, but they didn't have it. The throne was empty, and their hope was for this blessing. And then the first Christmas came. And it wasn't what they expected. And the king wasn't born in a palace. The young prince was born in a stable. And he didn't grow up wearing purple royal robes. He grew up as a suffering servant. And he wasn't coronated with a crown of gold. He was crucified with a crown of thorns. See, what they didn't recognize was that before they were under oppression and tyranny and captivity to Rome or Assyria, or Babylon. They first weren't prisoners to other countries. What they didn't realize was that they were first prisoners to their own hearts. And the angel told Mary, the Savior would come, and he would save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior we need. This is how the true king sets captives free. The wages for our sin is death. And Christ suffered that sentence in your place to liberate you from the shackles of your sin. See, the thing that keeps you down, the things that holds you back, the things that makes you feel like, I can't change, I can't change, I can't change, it isn't first what people have done to you. It isn't first what society around you and the system and the structures operate. It's First, our enslavement to sin and unrighteousness. But Jesus faced the sentence of our sin head on when he died on the cross. And he broke free of its power when he rose from the dead. 
So by faith in Jesus, our sin, we're liberated from it. And by faith in Jesus, we now can know the true king, the one whose life is worth modeling, the one whose rules are worth following. And when we follow his way and are governed under his rules, that's when we will contribute to a society, to a church, to a family. That's the part that you want to be in. You know, you know, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is the savior we need to enable us to live in the type of communities that we want to be a part of. He's the king who came to deliver. Crucial question. How would your life look different if you lived like you knew you needed this type of salvation? These are questions that I'm asking myself too. If I knew that I was broken and the reason for my brokenness was because I was seeking my fulfillment in the created thing and my desires were for the wrong place, but I recognized that Jesus suffered my brokenness in my place and fulfilled everything God wanted from me, I would live by faith in Jesus because I'd know that I'm saved by grace and not by my works. And, and that faith would enable this peace of mind, burden relieving, fear melting, because Christ has fulfilled it all in love. And all the need to receive it is by faith. Fear will melt away because I know I'm loved. The burden would be lifted because I know it's by grace. It's not like that always for me. But can you say that the mark of your life is a life lived by faith accompanied with peace? Or do you feel burdened under the, I haven't done enough, I haven't done enough, I haven't done enough. I can't be accepted, I can't be accepted, I can't be accepted. Jesus has borne the curse in your place so that you could receive the blessing. Choose faith in him and trust what he has done. If I really lived like I knew that Jesus had delivered me from my sin, then I would live in joyful, loving obedience to his way and his rules, modeling his life, seeking first his kingdom. It's the person who has felt the weight of their shackles and has seen that weight relieved, who can appreciate the true joys of the freedom that have been won. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Do not again submit to a a yoke of slavery. Romans 6 verse 14 says, For sin will not have dominion over you, for you are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. Christian, you are under the grace of Christ. If we really lived like we knew that, Christ would have your allegiance, wouldn't he? Not your job first. Not your bank account first. Not that home reno first. Not your kids having all the best Christmas gifts first. Not the seeking for the romantic relationships first. Christ first. Christ has secured your freedom. Does he have your heart? Jesus is the savior we need so that we can be whole and not broken, so that we can be free and not captive. And when we know this, we'll be able to sing with sincerity 
those words that are so familiar to us at this time of year. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and with heaven and nature sing. Your king has come, the son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus is the savior we need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ you have made us whole. You have given us freedom. Not in the way that we would have anticipated, not in the way that we would have planned, but in the way that you chose to be right and good, to honor your own good name, to satisfy and fulfill our souls. Thank you, Father. Lord, would you help me to live in loyal obedience to Jesus? Would you help me to live by faith in what he has done? God, would we all, in our hearts, prepare such room that he is first and he has us fully? Thank you for this gift and the who Jesus Christ is. Amen.